Wow. Hey, have you ever in the past maybe heard of one of those stories about someone being lost at sea? Uh, they happen once in a while. They don't usually turn out well. Well, in the summer of 2017, two longtime commercial fishermen named John Aldridge and Anthony Susinski set out to fish from Montauk, Long Island. And as they headed out to sea, about 40 miles or so offshore, Anthony was sleeping down below deck while John was up above, and he started to get things ready for the catch that he knew they would soon be enjoying. And as he was doing so, he was pulling hard on a handle that uh, needed to be moved into place, and when he did so, it snapped, and it sent him sprawling backwards right off of the back of the boat while his friend was asleep down below. Well, the boat was on autopilot, so it just kept cruising, of course, and as soon as he resurfaced from under the water, John began screaming for help, even though he knew his friend could not hear him. John watched the boat go up and over the crest of a wave, and then just like that, it was gone. There he was, alone in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, treading water for his life, without a life vest, thinking that this was it. This is how he's going to die. Can you imagine what that might be like? I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a moment like that, but it's a crazy situation to imagine and a hopeless situation if there ever was one in many respects or so it would seem. But while John was trying to calm down and quiet his thoughts of certain death and stay afloat, he realized that his feet were kind of coming up a little bit and he thought, oh, you know what, my boots might be a little bit uh, buoyant. So he took one off, turned it over, let it catch some air, and then put it back down. And sure enough, it, it was buoyant. So he did that with both, put them both under his arms, and kind of had his own makeshift buoyancy device, floaties, if you will. And uh, he at least was able to not drown in that short-term immediacy of that moment. A flicker of hope came. John thought of his family and the fact that no one anywhere even knew he was missing, including his friend on the boat. No one except, that is, the two sharks that he saw swim by him. But fortunately, they, like everybody else, kind of acted unaware or disinterested in him. So he began to try to set goals, beginning with just stay, af stay afloat, stay alive for at least another hour. Maybe he'll turn around and find me. Well, as it began to get dark, his next goal was just make it through the night. If I can just stay alive till morning, maybe, just maybe, somehow somebody will find me in the middle of this big ocean. Well, four hours later in the night, Anthony woke up and realized that John was gone. So he immediately called the Coast Guard and they began a search process, even though later the Coast Guard commander um, would recall all of that, and he said he admitted at that moment he thought there was almost no chance of finding this man out in this vast area of water without even really even knowing where he was at. Well, on the boat, Anthony found the broken handle and figured out what had happened, and so he also began to turn around and go and try and look for his friend, while John just floated in the middle of the ocean with his boots under his arms. Well, John did make it alive till morning, and he tried to keep his hope alive, but as the hours passed, it felt more and more hopeless. But finally, he spotted a fishing buoy and was eventually able to swim to it, climb onto it, 
and a surge of hope then came his way. And sure enough, less than an hour later, a Coast Guard helicopter flew nearby and spotted him, waving frantically by hanging on to that and splashing, and they were able to pull him to safety. We've been looking for you for nine hours today, the Coast Guard rescue diver told John, and he said, well, I've been looking for you for a lot longer than that. <laughs> and uh, he was just so thankful to be alive. But what an amazing story, a real, true story. And and that's what hope does. That's how amazing hope can be. If, if that had been you or I or most of us out there bobbing in the ocean, just trying to stay afloat, might not have even thought about the boot thing, and probably most of us or many of us would have drowned, but not John, because he maintained hope somehow, and he survived. But hope is like that. Hope is the whisper that maybe just Maybe these boots will float if I put them under my arms and keep me alive. And maybe, just maybe, somehow, if I can stay alive until, until the sun comes up again, maybe somebody will find me. So my question is, what does your hope look like? Where does your hope come from? For some, hope is the first candle to be lit when the power goes out in a storm. For others, hope is... The, the first day you wake up and can breathe after you've had an awful cold. But for others, hope is that percentage chance that you do have of possibly beating the cancer. Hope is the faint line on that stick when you've been struggling to get pregnant. It's the first ray of sunshine through your window after a tearful and difficult night. Hope can be the first soldier on the beach. Hope can be when you hear the words, they're going to be okay. Hope is the flicker of just maybe, maybe, just maybe. And hope is what we celebrate on this first Sunday of Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, the most celebrated holiday in our country. Advent is actually a season of hope. The word Advent means coming or arrival, and the season is marked by expectation and anticipation and waiting and longing. But Advent is not just an extension of Christmas. It is a season that links the past with the present and also even with the future. Advent looks back in celebration at the first coming of Jesus. We celebrate that first coming but it also gives us an opportunity in the present to say thank you for that and the presence of Jesus in our lives today. But thirdly, Advent also leads us to have anticipation and hope, a filling of hope as we think about the second coming of Jesus when He comes back to take all of us who call Him Lord and Savior home with Him forever. It's a season marked with all kinds of beauty, but in our season of, of frenzied busyness, Advent is also an opportunity for us to set aside and prepare, to, to set aside time and prepare our hearts to make sure that we are focused on the true meaning of Christmas, to make sure that we understand what Christmas is really all about. It's the story of God's redeeming love for our world. That's what it really is. It's it's not a season of pretending or covering up. It is a season of digging deep into the reality of what it means for God to send Emmanuel, 
His only Son, Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. In the flesh, God with us. That is the word, Emmanuel. And in a season of expectation and preparation, it is an opportunity to focus on the presence of God in our lives more than just the presence under a tree somewhere. To make sure that we keep first things first and focus on what Christmas is really all about. So wherever you are in your spiritual journey, I know in a room this size, we've got people in all different places within life. We want to invite you into a season of Advent, these four Sundays leading up to Christmas. It's a time for celebration, but it is also a time that allows for questions and and sorting out and dealing with struggles and thoughts as we take time to prepare our hearts for what Christmas truly means. God with us, Emmanuel, and an intimate and personal relationship with Him, that's the way God set it up from the very beginning. Think about it, the very first four words of the book, of the book, all 66 books put together called the Bible. In the beginning, God, and then we read all about the creation story, and you probably know that story, but if, if you do, you know that mankind chose poorly, brought sin into the world. And we can kind of look down our nose at Adam and Eve because it's their fault. They started it, but it could have been you and me as well. Any of us in that moment could have, would have actually made that same mistake in one way or another. But at that point, sin separated man from God. And the brokenness of our world that we all know far too well today is the result of sin. But do you realize that ever since that moment of sin entering the world, of brokenness coming to our world. Ever since then, God has been working toward restoration and healing and wholeness for us that He has been working on relentlessly throughout the whole story. That's the big story of God's Word. That's the essence of or the theme, the central thesis, if you will, throughout the whole book. This is what the Bible is all about. This is the story of Jesus, and therefore it is the story of Christmas. Throughout this whole time, you can see God making a way and giving and reminding His people of hope that He is still at work even when things look hopeless in some settings. We see it in God's covenant with Abraham, then called Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, God said this to him. He said, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then God uh, encountered Abraham's grandson Jacob at Bethel. And he renewed that covenant and reinforced the hope rooted in his faithfulness in Genesis chapter 28, where he said to Abram's grandson, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. But a lot of time passed, years, in fact, generations, in fact, centuries passed, and we as humans are not all that patient, are we? kind of an impatient breed, are we not? I am anyway. And so the cry became, how long, God? How long do we have to wait? That's what the people of Israel cried. That's what often God, I think, hears from you and I in many cases as well. But the time, from the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the time of David and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and others, many other prophets, there was a repeating cyclical history of devotion to God and then neglect. Devotion to God and then more neglect of God. There was prosperity, 
and then there was recession. There was feast, and then there was literal famine. There was pleasure and then pain. The Hebrew people were not really all that much different from you and I. When things got good, they tended to forget God. And then only when things got bad and hit the fan, then they would sometimes repent, but often cry out for help. And that pattern would repeat itself over and over. And I hate it when I see that in the mirror, when I look at myself, but I do. Do you not? I see that tendency in all of us. But through it all, there was a deep and ongoing longing for God to fulfill His covenant and His promise of a Messiah who would come and make everything right in perfect timing, in God's timing. This wasn't just some happy ideal that they kind of periodically thought about. This was a deep longing. This was their focus. This is what kept them going century after century and, and generation after generation. It was their deepest hope that sustained them and encouraged them and spurred them on. In the midst of that long journey of hope, Isaiah is the name of a man that God uses in a great way. He's what Bible scholars would call a major prophet. He wrote a lot and taught a lot and played a prominent role and public role in Israel. He was a pretty famous guy, although not necessarily all that popular, especially when he was telling kings and even general public people things like this, like, God doesn't like the way you're cheating poor people. Or, or an enemy empire is going to invade and destroy your country because of your disobedience. People didn't like hearing such things, so he may not have been popular, but still, you might say Isaiah was the poster prophet for Advent in many respects. This season, season of longing and expectation and eagerness and hoping for God to literally be with us. God with us. Well, through Isaiah, God gave Israel and therefore us many prophecies and promises about the coming Messiah that he would soon send. And in that way, Isaiah was a voice of hope for all. You probably know many of these teachings. Um, scripture, scripture from the book of Isaiah is popular around Christmas, as you'll see. You'll probably recognize this scripture I share with you in a moment. Isaiah lived about 700 years before Jesus, but he gave us beautiful words, even though it was 700 years earlier, beautiful words that ring with hope for the coming Messiah that we now celebrate and enjoy reading at Christmas as well. Listen to some of what he wrote. He said this in Isaiah chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Which again means what? God with us, yeah. And then look at chapter 9. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And then a little later in the same chapter, he wrote, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Does that sound familiar? And the government will be on his shoulders. Say this part with me. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isn't that beautiful? 
Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Wow, talk about a a message of hope. I mean, in a world that obviously did not have digital communication. In fact, really, in that time, they didn't even hardly have any written communication, almost nothing. I mean, the idea of having a Bible in their hand, like you and I can do so easily and take for granted, was foreign to them. They, they could not have even imagined that. And anyway, so to hear these words of hope given through Isaiah by God, can you imagine the hope that would have come to them and as they, how, how much it would have sprung up inside their hearts and how excited they would be to hear about the coming of a Messiah promised by Almighty God? That makes me think of some questions. I mean, did Isaiah personally understand what God was saying through him, all these promises and messages? On some level, I think yes, probably, but on other levels, probably not. He for sure did not know God's timeline as to when it would happen and you know, what, what it would look like when the Messiah came. But Isaiah was filled with hope, and God's promises fueled him and his people to continue to hope for years, in fact, for centuries. His vision of God with us still fuels hope inside of us a millennia later. Isn't that incredible? Well, as we turn our attention to the Christian narrative in the New Testament, uh, the book that we often look at at Christmas time, the book of Luke, we find a character named Zechariah who would have been well acquainted with the words and prophecies of Isaiah. He was a priest. Yeah, Luke described him as a righteous and blameless priest. He was a good Jewish follower of God and a spiritual leader to his people, and he undoubtedly held a great faith in God and longing for the Messiah that had been promised and, and all of that. But Zechariah was still in great shock when suddenly, out of the blue on an ordinary day, when he was just doing his normal priestly duties, when all of a sudden God dropped a bomb or a mega dose of hope into his world, but not only for him, but for the whole nation, all of God's people. But again, to him, to Zechariah, the priest, it seemed just too good to be true, too big a pill to swallow. This can't be. Picture it. It's been, think about this, it's been 400 years since God, or since Israel had heard a clear prophetic message from God, a message from God. 400 years. Think about that number. I mean, Our United States is only 242 years old, so 400 years. Try to imagine that. That's the length that this nation of people have been waiting to hear from God. Well, 400 years later, after God's people had last heard from him, an angel shows up and tells Zechariah that he is going to have a son, a son even in his old age, and here's here's what is said of him, a son who, quote, will go on before the Lord in in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. See, Zechariah knew the prophecies of the Messiah, and he knew that it would be a miraculous occurrence, but still in his flesh, in his normal self, you know, pastors and priests are normal people like everybody else, and in his flesh, in his, I can't see about more than about an inch in front of my nose. Have you ever been there? I have. In that moment, he was like, okay, I just, I can't, I cannot believe this. This can't be true. Even though he knew the 
the, the prophecies. He understood God's word, and yet he could not believe it. I think he struggled to believe, even though he had a story that was going to unfold somewhat similar to Abraham and Sarah, and he knew that story too. You see, Sarah and Abraham gave birth to a child in their extreme old age, and Zechariah now, in, the, in this moment, with his wife Elizabeth, were also very old, way, way too old to have a child. Could not happen physically. And to say that their being without children was a big deal is a gross understatement. You see, in those days, it was shameful, especially to the women, to not be able to have a child. Zechariah and Elizabeth would have undoubtedly wanted desperately to have children. They would have undoubtedly prayed and begged God for mercy and healing and, and, and a gift of a child. And yet, they had not ever seen that happen. And they had lost hope. They had given up on that possibility. Not going to happen. Never going to happen. And they were still well thought of, especially Zachariah as a priest that everybody knew. But the fact that they were childless would have been a stigma that followed them. There would have been like a figurative asterisk beside their name. People would have been like, oh, Zachariah and Elizabeth. Oh, yeah, they're the whisper, whisper. You know. And it had to have been a very heavy thing. So, when Zechariah received this angelic, special, amazing prophecy from God, he had a hard time taking it in. Ironically, it doesn't appear that it was so hard for him to swallow the fact that God is going to send his only son, Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh, the Messiah, the promised one. He's coming to this earth, and Zechariah's like, oh, okay. But the part about us having a child in our late age, no way, God. That's the part he was like, that can't be. Are you kidding me? God, Lord, do, do you know how old we are? Are you serious? I mean, that, that is impossible. You've got to be kidding me. It's basically his response, and as a result, God made sure Zechariah remained literally speechless until his son John, a.k.a. John the Baptist, was born. And that would certainly be an inconvenience, of course, but can you imagine the hope that began to well up and, and overflow in the lives of not only John, and not only, not only Zachariah and Elizabeth, but all the other people as this story began to develop and unfold in front of their very eyes. That the Messiah is here. God is moving to restore hope, to show His people that after 400 years of silence, He, is, he has not forgotten them, that He is here, that He still cares, that, that He loves them, and that the human expression of God with us is literally going to come true right in front of their eyes. Hope in Israel was alive again. Hope on earth at its deepest level was alive again, praise God. And yet if you're like a lot of other people, you're thinking, well, that's nice, that's really cool, that's an awesome Sunday school lesson for people that like history and great for those people a couple thousand years ago, but what in the world does that have to do with me? I mean, okay, it's nice, but how does that affect me? I mean, those people weren't fighting cancer. Those people didn't, you know, they didn't have a spouse that walked out on them last week. They, uh, they didn't lose their job with no warning and still have bills to pay and debts stacking up and kids expecting Christmas presents. Well, can I tell you, friends, church family, that no matter, no matter how hopeless your today looks like and no matter how painful or scary the future may look for you, there is hope. 
Because God is indeed with us. He is Emmanuel. He was Emmanuel God with us then, and He is Emmanuel God with us today. And that's a good time to say amen. Do you believe that? Because that is the truth. God loves you more than you can possibly imagine, and He is here with us today. And as we enter this time of Advent, preparation and anticipation of Christmas, I think He wants us to understand and focus on a hope that goes beyond anything this world can offer. Nothing this world, nothing you see on television or that you read in any book written by anybody today can even begin to describe what we see in God's Word, the hope of the world. Jesus, God's Son, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, how can we know all of this to be true? How can we find that tiny spark of hope when, when we feel like giving up in the middle of whatever difficulty you might be facing? Well, I think there are several ways that God can kindle and, and reconnect with, with hope in our lives during this Advent season. And let me just share with you, the, with the short amount of time we have left, three ways. If you're filling in the blanks, write these down. Number one is this. The first way to find hope in our world today is to find hope based on God's Word. Hope based on God's Word. You see, part of this concept, God with us, part of God with us is the written Word that God has left us. That's how He is with us. These are His promises to His people, both long ago, but also for today. They are a piece of Him. They are beacons of hope. They are reminders that can penetrate our hearts and, and our spirits and and assure us that no matter what we are facing, no matter how bleak tomorrow may look or how difficult today may seem, God will never leave us or forsake us, and nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Another time for an amen. Nothing in all creation can separate us from His love. That's a direct quote from this book that we need to focus on and allow Him to speak to us through. Let me show you another quote from the Old Testament, and in, in the book of Psalms, chapter 139, consider these words. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, Surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will, be, will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Can you feel the hope in these words written? These words are written clearly by someone struggling to find hope, maybe even struggling to believe in or trust that hope is a real thing. And yet even there, even there there is hope. God is with us. You are not alone. God with us means He is always with us. And nothing, somebody say nothing. nothing. Come on, nothing like you mean it. Nothing. Nothing, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Amen? Yes. Nothing can separate us from Him or from His hope that He has promised us. Scripture is filled with stories and words and promises and all kinds of beautiful things that can rekindle a supernatural hope within us. And as we move through Advent, let me encourage you to dig into the words of God with expectation and with focus, 
with passion. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and so let me just briefly summarize again or recap that again. No matter how busy you are, Christmas time is a time where we get awfully busy, and it's not necessarily bad to be busy, but if we get too busy to have time alone with the Lord, then we are too busy. And something needs to go other than our time alone with the Lord. Don't let that happen. Don't fall prey to that, that trick that our enemy, the devil, wants for you. To get so busy focusing on the presence under the tree that you forget to enjoy the presence of Almighty God. Don't let that happen. Spend time in His Word. Carve out time with Him every day. His Word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path, but only, only if we open it and allow it access to our hearts. Well, the second way we can rekindle hope today is to put our focus on God's character. Let me encourage you to focus on God's character and who He is and how, how we see Him to be promised, what he, what, what he promises Himself to be. You know, there's a small story told in the book of Mark. It's Mark chapter 5. If you want to follow along, you can, but um, or maybe look it up later, but Mark chapter 5 tells us this story that's easy to overlook, often does get overlooked, but it's a, a great story of great hope. It's about a woman, we don't know her name, but a woman who had bold hope. For 12 years, you see, this woman had been bleeding, somehow bleeding, and the Bible didn't tell us all the details, but no one has been able to help her. Doctors have tried, and yet this woman's condition seems to just continue and continue and actually get worse. And it was a condition that would have affected everything about her. It wasn't just part of her life, like, oh, by the way, I have this condition. It was a consuming, all-encompassing part of who she was. It was a huge thing. Those of you with long-term illnesses can, I'm sure, identify with this. The rest of us might have a little bit of a hard time, kind of like many of the people there who probably had a hard time knowing what to do with her. This woman was probably considered unclean and treated like an outcast because of her health problems, even people who might truly want to empathize and try to understand and care for her could not because she couldn't even understand it herself. But she had heard about this character, this guy named Jesus. I mean, just walking the earth at that time, she just heard stories here and there about this guy and miracles and healings. And, and as she heard all of that, she chose to believe. And she chose to think, you know what, maybe, just, just maybe, if I go and, and do what I don't normally do, which is get involved in people and get around a crowd, I usually hide, stay off by myself, but if I get in there and get into that crowd somehow, and if I can just somehow reach out and touch him, maybe just, just simply touch him, I believe, I believe that something can change, that he can and will heal me. And so what she did was a very bold thing. It might not seem like it to us, like, okay, it's not that big a deal what she chose to do, but yes, it was. It was a very big deal what she chose to do. She, she, she reached out, she, she, she pressed through the crowd and got to a place where she was able to touch him, and literally in an instant, in a moment, her life was changed forever, and she was healed. Praise God. Now, was that hard for her? You better believe it was. I think it was very difficult for her in a number of ways. For one, just jockeying through, working through the crowd, you know, that would have been difficult, but especially it would have been difficult because of the stigma that she had to deal with, the, the fact that, that she had 
kind of had this reputation that people looked down upon her and were like, what are you doing here? This, you're, this is not a place for you. And yet here she was, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me. And she worked her way through that crowd so that she could in faith touch him in hope that maybe he could heal her. Was she afraid? I would say probably, especially when Jesus called her out. He turned after he felt power go out from him, the Bible says, and he said, who touched me? And his disciples responded with like, in my paraphrase, but like, Lord, are you kidding? What are you talking about? Everybody's around you. There's a huge crowd. All kinds of people are touching all of us. Who knows? What do you mean? And he said, no, I don't mean just casually touch me. Who touched me in a special way? And in that moment, I would guess that woman froze probably with fear in that pregnant moment of, what do I do? I want to say thank you. I know, I I sense, I feel that I've been healed, and I want to say thank you and worship Him and praise Him, but I'm also afraid, am I about to get in trouble? I mean, that was really bold. Maybe I'm going to get called out and, and chastised for being so bold and being so presumptuous. But in that brief moment, I think she paused and she decided to do what was right. And she said, "Um, it was me. It was me. And I don't know exactly what the facial expressions or the tone of Jesus were. We have a description of his words, but I think he looked at her. And maybe even with a tear in his eye or at least a twinkle in his eye, he looked at her with compassion and love like she had never experienced or seen in anybody else in this world before. And he loved her. And he reached out and helped her and connected with her through her fear and timidity and all of that. And then in that moment of her boldness, he confirmed his character and he loved her in a way that she had never been loved before. And the healing and peace and freedom that he gave her changed her life. This is our God. This is his character. This is our Jesus. The same Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, that came and loved her in that moment. The character that came through and shone through him that day is the same Jesus that shines through and loves you in your moment right here today as well. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And anything that tells you otherwise is the voice of your enemy not the voice of God. He is that God. His compassion is that kind of compassion. That is His character. That is who He is. And we can find hope in that kind of character. God with us. A God with character that is full of hope and compassion and peace and forgiveness, grace and gentleness and so much more. The third way we can find and choose hope in today's world is by focusing on His faithfulness, faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. We sang it last week. If you grew up like me going to a church where we sang that all the time, took that song for granted, but boy, is that powerful. And it is so true. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. How has God worked in your life? That's my question for you. How, how have those, how have moments or situations played out in your life that make you think, wow, man, yeah, God is really faithful. Can you remember some of them? I mean, for me, I have a number of stories, but three in particular that I, that I love to just remember. I love to tell other people. I love to, to go out to dinner. If you ever want to buy me dinner, I'll tell you stories because I love to tell stories. Um, but 
but there are some incredible stories that I've been able to live. And my guess would be that most of you have, as well have had moments where somebody might say, oh, that's probably coincidence. But you would say, well, no, I just know. I, I, I guess I can't prove it, but I just know that God is in the middle of that, this thing right here. Let me tell you the story. And those kind of stories are incredible and encouraging, and, and, and I think we need to, to think about them and retell them and rethink them. But some of you might go, okay, that's great, but what does that have to do with hope? Well, I'll tell you what these memories have to do with your here and now, these things from the past and how they affect your today. I would tell, I would tell you this, or put it this way, I would say gratitude breeds hope. Thankfulness fosters hope. And remembrance brings hope. Let me say that again. Gratitude breeds hope. Thankfulness fosters hope. And remembrance brings hope. So we need to think about God's faithfulness in the past so that He can work through those memories to bring hope in our present as well and even our future when when it arrives. Listen to these words from Jeremiah, the prophet, as we close. He wrote this in the book of Lamentations, a book that probably not many of us read very often. But here's what he said. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Here's where that song came from. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for Him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in Him, to the one who seeks Him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. Did you catch the first of those verses though? Read it quickly. Let Let me read it to you again. Look at this. He said, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Yet this I remember, as I remember this, it brings hope. You see, you see, Jeremiah understood that there is hope in the future when we remember what God has done in the past. That is why we need to remember and tell stories and, and relive stories and think about them and praise God for them. He knew, Jeremiah knew that hope sparks like a fire, that it grows like water, it grows like a seed. Hope multiplies and spreads like a living organism. It it can, yes, it can dwindle and wane and even die. But if we will nurture it and care for it and revive it and flourish, it it can be revived, it can flourish if we will remember and dwell on the truth of that statement, of that song, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. So as we begin this Advent season, let me close by praying together with you that God will help us find hope in His Holy Spirit and in His holy and life-giving Word. We find hope there in His Word, but also in His unchanging and perfect character. And then thirdly, yes, in His great faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. I want to ask you to stand with me, and I want to pray over you a verse. You can see it on the screen. It's Romans chapter 15, verse 13. As we begin to pray, let me pray this. Lord, 
May the God of hope fill each of these with all joy and peace as we trust in you so that you may overflow with hope, so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that is our prayer. God, I pray that as we, as we come to this season of Advent, as we look forward to Christmas and the beauty of it and the, all the things associated that we enjoy, the gathering together as families and the sharing of gifts and all these things that are fine, eating dinners together and all those things, vacation time, all that is fine. But Lord, will you please remind us that our ultimate hope, our real hope, what matters most in this world is all about you sending your only son, Jesus, to be Emmanuel, God with us. Let us remember, Lord, and never forget that that is where all of our hope really lies and that without that truth, nothing in this world would really matter.